Hi, welcome to the new schools. Joseph Connor is a startup founder, attorney, and teacher. He co-founded GetSchoolhouse.com in 2020. Schoolhouse is an at-home micro-school company with over 50 schools throughout the country. They offer in-person programs that are five-hour days, two to five days per week. They also help families set up at-home, in-person learning pods in groups of four to eight students. So if you're looking for a full school replacement or just a supplement, they'll match you with educators in your area. Joseph started his career as a teacher and school leader at KIPP Public College Prep Schools in DC and Rocket Ship Public Charter Schools in California. He's also worked as legal counsel for school organizations including Match Education, Alt School, and the Notre Dame Ace Academies and Primer. In this episode, Joseph talks about in-person learning pods and how the pandemic accelerated the micro-school learning trend. Hear how he went from the law profession to an educational entrepreneur and what the future holds for new schools from Schoolhouse. And now here's your host, Shannon Falkenstein, speaking with Joseph Connor. Hello, Joseph Connor, and welcome to the New Schools Podcast. Thanks for stopping by today. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, fantastic. I can't wait to talk to you. Um, so, um, so tell me, I just like, I want to hear your story. Like, how did you get from, you know, like, how did you get from where you were to where you are today and why? Yeah, absolutely. So I started as a teacher. Um, I taught for several years at the KIPP Charter School Network in D.C. and Philly, and then was recruited out to the West Coast when Rocket Ship Education was opening up some of their very first schools. And so I moved out there um, and worked as a school leader and as a teacher and was prepping to open up my own school when we actually got sued by the local teachers union and neighborhood um, association who didn't want us to build any type of structure in their neighborhood. Um, It's kind of typical Bay Area politics. So we ended up actually having to litigate it through a combination of public hearings and some court hearings. And ultimately we lost. Um, So at that point I had dedicated a lot of my life to teaching and being a school leader and was left without a school. So at that point, I decided, let me go to law school to actually figure out how the laws work so I can open up my own school next time. Uh, So went to law school at Notre Dame. While I was there, worked with some of the folks at the Alliance for Catholic Education, which is a private school choice organization on campus, Um, helped them open up kind of more Catholic schools and helping to turn around uh, struggling Catholic schools. Then when I graduated, started working for a uh, micro school startup called Alt School. Um, Back in 2016, they had plans to kind of open up small micro schools across the country. So I helped them with their 50 state plan uh, to do that. And then uh, continued working, but went in-house into a law firm um, where I worked on some super interesting school choice cases uh, like Espinoza and some others, helped some homeschooling organizations, um, advocated for homeschooling families. Um, and worked for some really interesting uh, startups. And I had kind of seen the writing on the wall that there was this push for private and micro schools. And so at that point, a couple of years ago, started the company that became Schoolhouse, um, which is a provider of at-home micro schools. 
Um, so that's kind of uh, my quick story in a couple of minutes. Very nice. So, so wow, I guess, it, so it sounds like when you were at Schoolhouse that you started pre-pandemic and yes. you were kind of putting together educators with families who wanted to have a micro school type environment of like a pod type environment. Exactly. And yeah. then came the pandemic, which seems like the perfect setting for that. How was yeah. that? Did you have experience rapid growth over there? We did. Um, it was all of a sudden we had momentum on our side and we had, you know, hundreds or thousands of incoming parents and teachers who want to open up schools, parents who want to attend them. Um, and so we ended up opening um, in the space of a little over three months, we opened 50 new micro schools um, in nine states. So wow. we had kind of our work cut out for us um, once the pandemic hit. And it was really just parents who were looking for something different. We had schools across the country, but parents were concerned about maybe if their schools locally were open. They had their own concerns about health. Other places, all of the schools were shut and there were no options for the families and they really wanted an in-person option. Um, and so it was kind of a wide variety of parents we served. We also served everyone from Montessori to Waldorf to we had a few um, religious schools during that time. Um, it was kind of what parents wanted and we were able to match each parent and their um, needs with kind of a local great educator who then was going to open up the school uh, in their home. Wow, that's fantastic. So you said, so tell us more, our audience is really like educators and parents who are kind of in that space of like, I'm not so sure that I like my, the conventional school, and they're looking to do something different. And it sounds like you have been acquainted with many, many educators and parents like that. What are some of the kind of um, drivers of that for families and for educators. We usually talk about parents, yeah. but maybe you could talk also about educators. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the model is really appealing. I think the micro school and learning pod model is really appealing to teachers, um, which is, I think, super fascinating because I think you're going to see more and more teachers flow into this space. But essentially, you know, for our teachers, we offer them um, kind of five days a week um, five hours a day, which is typically less than the average amount of time that the teacher puts in. The rest of the time, the teachers are able to go back um, and kind of work as needed uh, from their home. Uh, so it's a very flexible schedule. Uh, the teacher also gets to put a hand into kind of their calendar or kind of the daily schedule. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, they get autonomy. So teachers were able to set up and kind of run the schools exactly how they want it. So, and all of that, plus um, since we ran a pretty lean um, organization in terms of overhead and people in the administration, we were able to actually pay most teachers about 10 to 20% more than the local um, salary uh, schedule. So all in all, teachers were very happy. And I think it was, having been a teacher myself, most teachers aren't really given that autonomy. And so I think the pay piece is very nice, but I think a lot of teachers, after a couple of years, they can be frustrated by teaching in certain networks or at certain districts where, you know, it can be quite rigid in terms of what you want to teach. I had friends in major districts who were teaching scripted lessons after five or six years, and that wasn't really what they'd gotten into teaching doing. And so I think 
one of the key drivers is really just giving teachers autonomy and a model that does that I think will be successful. That's great. Thank you for giving that perspective. And parents, what did you feel that were the drivers for parents? I think parents want something specific for their son or daughter. And when that option isn't available locally, that's where we saw parents reach out. So in some cases, it was in rural areas like upstate New York um, or kind of rural Massachusetts where parents wanted maybe kind of a more diverse, progressive option than what was available locally from their public schools. Um, in other places, we actually had requests for things like Jewish day schools or Catholic schools or um, curriculums that are Afrocentric. And so it really just depended. But I think all of it came down to that parents really feel strongly that they want a school that reflects their family's values and their community's values. And when there's not that school, that's, I think, when they start looking for alternatives like micro schools, like homeschooling, like learning pods. Right. Okay. Fantastic. So looking for just like a lot more variety and yes. avail- uh-huh, variety of yeah. choice, right? right? And freedom to make right. that choice and, and not to have to like quit your day job and start doing it yourself because that's a really hard choice. <laughs> Acton owners, like that's what we did, right? We all, we were frustrated. Owners, like that's what we did, right? We all, we were frustrated and disillusioned and we wanted something else. And then we're like, okay, guess I'm starting on this hero's journey to start a whole new school. So um, it sounds like you're giving people that uh, maybe easier, softer way to yes. get that done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the best school models do that. They really provide a similar environment to the home and kind of the values that the parents are looking for. And I think similar to your journey, I think a lot of school leaders, especially of kind of small micro schools, Acton Academies and others, uh, got to school leadership maybe in a very unintentional path of started exploring it and ended up wanting to kind of see that option locally. And they were kind of the best person equipped to bring it about, which I think is always really neat. Thank you. Yeah, it's always, it's a fun, it's a fun journey. So, wow, there's so much to dive into here. I'm trying to think of, of how to approach it. Um, you know, I'm not sitting in the United States. I'm in El Salvador and, um, you know, we have all our own issues down here um, that I would say are far more dire than those in the United States. But I am aware that in the U.S. there's kind of this struggle between, you um, public school and then private school and kind of wanting to give families much more choice over what they can, you know, what they can do. Um, and that like, if you want to go to a private, like we've thought of moving back to the United States. Right. And then we, because I'm from there and, and we miss my family and things, but then it's like, okay, well, you either need to kind of be in a wealthy neighborhood to get a good, I'm putting that in air quotes, public school, or you have to pay an exorbitant amount of money to go to a good private school, right? And so I feel like families, there's a bind there, right? That that's, that's a difficult choice to make. So can you, you know, can we just like get into that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, where I'm located right now, which is New York City and Manhattan, average price of a private school education here is 44,000. And it runs as, oh, I mean, those are college level rates for a lot of people, right? 
And that's very, very difficult, um, even for folks here in New York. And so I think one of the most exciting things that's happening in education in the U.S. is that individual states are starting to pass what are known as private school choice uh, laws. And so there's kind of a wide variety of them, but just to name a few, there's tax credit scholarships, um, there are vouchers, there are education savings accounts, and those are kind of the top three. And I think one really interesting um, outcome of the pandemic is that what was already popular before is becoming increasingly popular as parents realize how important it is to have those choices that you just mentioned. And so all of those programs in different ways provide money directly to the parents to use how they want. So they can take it and go to a private school. For some of the programs, they can take it and they can homeschool and they can use the money on curriculum or at a local co-op or field trips. Um, and so it's really about giving parents the flexibility that a lot of people are really only able to get when, when they can afford private school tuition out of pocket. And so I think it's really exciting that all of a sudden the money is starting to follow the student. And with that comes some super interesting implications, right? If people love acting academies and that's where the money's flowing, then there'll be more acting academies. Um, if they love you know, time for learning, homeschool curriculum, then that will continue to grow. And so I think it's a really interesting way of actually having uh, educators and educational organizations be accountable in a way that for so long they haven't been. And I know that there's also, I know I've heard people kind of be critical of that movement and say that, I think maybe they say that like, money that should be going to public schools then won't be going to public schools and they feel concerned that that will like threaten the quality of public school. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think the, the best criticism of programs like that is really getting into that equity argument of, hey, if it's only kind of the parents who are best equipped and who are applying for these programs are taking them, then you're gonna increasingly have um, a population that's left in the public schools that isn't really equipped to do it by themselves, right? And so you're gonna see a hollowing out of public schools. I think it's a well-intentioned critique, but I think ultimately, if you look at the programs that I'm talking about, they're actually designed for those types of families. So they have um, income eligibility, and usually it's for low-income families. Um, some of them also uh, qualify if your son or daughter has been the victim of bullying. Um, some help Native American um, tribes. Uh, and so they actually really focus on groups that historically have been undervalued by the local school system. And the idea really is to help those uh, groups who are in most need of it. So I think that there's always a big um, desire on everyone to maintain an equitable school system. But I think the, the false assumption, right, is that what we're doing now works. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think that is the case. Having worked in public schools and public charter schools before, um, not every school in every district is a great school. And there are a lot of failing schools or schools that aren't doing a good job. And unfortunately, those often are attended by families who are low income. And it's because the school held accountable. And so I think a lot of these programs are really designed so that they will help low income families and other families who really need it the most. 
Okay. Yeah, I've heard the argument that, that say, for example, if you are going to a public institution, yes, of course, you're paying for that through taxes, but you're not choosing which school you're paying to go to. Whereas if you actually have money or a voucher or, you know, some kind of value, that currency that you can choose where you're going to go, then it is kind of subject to market forces. So that if you, so like if you're, if there's a local school that's doing a fantastic job, like you're saying, money will flow to them because they're doing a great job. They'll make more money. They'll be able to invest more in resources than in teachers and all that. And they'll keep growing because they're doing a quality job. And then if there's a school that's not doing a quality job, people will not send their money there. And so then that school will naturally maybe close because it hasn't yeah. done a great job. And that that actually makes all the schools better because they are kind of competing for that money. Would you yeah. say that that argument is, is correct? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, or valid. It, also, it, it also already happens. We're regardless of whether or not you actually have a policy in place, when you think about in the US, a lot of um, the neighborhoods with the most expensive school districts are often in the suburbs and the cost of the house is usually directly correlated with how, how high the quality of the local school system is. I know here in New York state, a lot of neighborhoods in Westchester are very expensive and it's because they have great school systems. And so families essentially are competing for limited in those schools and the, the cost of admission is essentially a house, right? And so that's mm -hmm. why you see some of these um, neighborhoods. And you can actually even compare side by side where you know, school district that stops at a certain block, right? The differential um, in housing prices can be 20 or 30%. Um, and so, yeah, it's the type of thing where market forces are already at play. And I think a lot of the education system in the U.S. would actually benefit from having uh, the funding flow directly to the families and then just let the families make the best choice for them. Yeah, and it seems that if you're, maybe if you're a family that doesn't make enough money to buy the house in that wonderful area, or maybe yeah. even just doesn't feel like they wanna live in that one, that type of an area that seems yeah. that perhaps is, you know, just very high income. Um, and then, you know, but you still have put a very high value on education for your children that you're kind of in a bind there too, right? So if yeah. you could actually have that money to make the decision about school, but it doesn't have to tie into your neighbors, your house, your taxes, all that kind of stuff, then you would have, it sounds like a lot more people would have a lot more choices, which seems like a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the playing field, right? I mean, the, the term is often referred to as school choice, mm -hmm. but it is something that families exercise if they have money, right? Because they do move to those districts and they do move into those neighborhoods, but families who can't afford it, right? They can't afford a home in Scarsdale, then they're actually kind of forced into their local school. And so in some ways, right, this is kind of about, hey, let's give kind of everyone um, money, and then they can kind of go to the school that they think is best. Um, and hopefully that results in a much more equitable school system. Nice. Okay. That's great.
So what is your sort of looking at, you know, I know that you, you seem to know a lot about kind of the whole landscape in the United States legally, and then also like what, what are the drivers for educators and also for families? I always, I love to ask this question. And I know um, someone also on the podcast said like, sure, I can predict. I mean, I mean, I might be wrong. So go ahead and be wrong. But what do you kind of predict is going to happen? Because it feels like we're at a real inflection point in a lot of different areas with school choice, with technology, with, the, with you know, COVID repercussions, with masks, yeah. with all that, you know, like what, what do you think is going to, I mean, more than anything, I think it is though, just that the world has changed, right? Like, the, all the economics of the world have changed, like jobs in the future. We don't even know what those are going to be like. So what do you predict is going to happen in K through 12? I've had such a range of great answers to this question. Yeah. So I can't wait to hear what you say. Yeah, um, I think that what you're beginning to see is the disaggregation of where folks live and the school that they attend. And so I think when COVID-19 came along, there were already tools in place for people's work that they could work wherever, right? You have uh, companies that have international payroll, you have um, uh, Zoom and Google Meets, you have Slack, you have email, all of these tools that are essentially la allow anyone to work from anywhere. And so it was quite easy for people to then not go into the office and continue working. Um, on the school side, I think what we saw was that there were a few tools and organizations that were ready to do that, and some did it quite well. Um, the Success Academy Charter Schools here in New York actually did a great job of switching over to remote, and there were some districts that did a really good job. But on the whole, I think what it showed was that there was a lot more that really needs to get built, um, both for public schools, for private, for online, for um, homeschool. And so I think what you're seeing now is all of these uh, startups and nonprofits and orgs are really at the beginning of building for uh, those parents who want to be able to move away from the large city or attend a great school and live in a rural area. Um, and so you're starting to see some startups. So for example, um, there's a company called Primer. Uh, they do for middle schoolers, age nine through 14, um, online clubs and extracurriculars where kids can actually interact with each other and explore their passions and interests. Um, and that's a really cool way for someone who's located in a single city, right, to have friends kind of around the world. And prior to that company being founded, that wasn't possible. Um, you're also beginning to see a lot of eyes of, I think, online schools. So Sora School, um, which is kind of a great online option, is now beginning to expand. Um, it was started just recently. And I think you're going to see that kind of all the way down in many different countries. I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day, Venezuelan, who is trying to set up an online school for families in Central and South America. I think you're going to see a lot of different players flowing into it. And so I think over the next couple of years, you're, you're really going to see an increase in alternative education. And so I think micro schools are going to increase their enrollment. I think online schools are going to increase their enrollment. Um, I think homeschooling is going to increase their enrollment. I think private schools will. I think unless public schools are able to adopt some of those innovations, that you'll continue to see a decline in kind of the traditional public school here in America as parents increasingly reach out for those different options. Um, and it's gonna be really interesting because I think a lot of it's gonna be a hybrid. I think we found out that there are some things that work well online in education. 
And then there are some things that don't work so well in education. I mean, a lot of our families from the, the um, COVID-19, the, the first year in the pandemic at the schoolhouse, came to us because they had kindergartners, first graders, second graders, and they were on, they were on Zoom all day, uh, five days a week. And the parents really didn't like, wanted them to have kind of safe in-person interactions. And so that's kind of where folks then reached out for in-person. Um, and so I think you're going to see a lot of that, where some of the schooling happens online and there's great instructors. And then there are kind of local micro schools or learning pods or places to drop in where kids can actually socially interact with each other. And so I think the best schools are going to be able to make use of uh, both of those um, approaches to education. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I interviewed Garrett Smiley from Sora Schools a few yeah. months ago. And then also Victoria Ransom from PRISM. Mm. And I just talked to Kath Fraze, who's done that and okay. doing that amazing workspace, Sky Teens. Yeah. Just so much incredible innovation going on. Um, but what I, okay, like if you could just erase your mind, like you never even knew what school was before, you know, and then just start over again. Like, I wonder what would, what would come out because I do, we, I noticed at Acton, like we did a fantastic job as a network of switching from one day to the next to getting most of the, you know, the older children online, our, our yeah. learners, because they're already so self-directed and they already used a lot of technology and set their own goals and manage themselves. And so it was just like from one day to the next third grade and up was like just online. But yeah. we did notice over a year and a half that for, for those of us, for, like, for example, in my country, we had a very strong, long lockdown. So um, it really wore on them, you know, and it just you cannot do online what you can do in person. Um, some things you can, of course, you know, like I also interviewed um, Chrisman Frank from Synthesis School. And yeah. um, so there's some amazing things that you can do online. But there's a lot of things where you really need that human with you. And so um, I, I'm always, I just like, I want to know, like, what is going to be the most successful model of school? And how are we going to leverage in person and online and make that work? And how are we divvying that up? And what that, do you have any ideas? I think it's going to be a whole host of different providers. So I think that at different times, parents will use different things that they think work for their kids. Because look, just as kids, you know, just as adults change their preferences over time, right? Kids change their preferences and they're also developing differently, right? So what might work for them in the first grade might not work for them in the third grade. And so one thing that I think homeschooling um, in America and around the world does really do is that it's actually very responsive to the kids. I think that's actually why homeschooling is so successful. If you go into any of the numerous Facebook groups or, um, you know, that are online devoted to homeschooling, usually it's a mother or father and they're trying to figure out, oh, you know, my son or daughter doesn't like this program anymore. What's the next one that they can move on to? And I think that kind of um, responsiveness, even the best uh, micro schools and private schools, I think really struggle with, right? Because most of them have a very clear view of how to classical education or it's project-based learning or it's entrepreneurship. And so I think that, 
you'll see parents increasingly kind of pick and choose, right? Maybe they'll start with Montessori for kind of pre-K. And then as they get into elementary, maybe their child is really interested in business, right? So they go to an Acton Academy for a few years and they kind of learn about some entrepreneurship. And then after that, um, they're aging into the middle school. And so they want to really explore certain hobbies and interests online with other folks. So they join Primer and then they get to Sora when they're in high school, right? And so you can kind of see that I think increasingly people are really going to focus on a certain specialty, the organizations and companies and startups that are out there. And I think they're going to do it really well. And that's going to have families choose them at that certain point in time, right? So Sora might specialize in high school and Primer specializes in middle school. And so I think you're going to kind of see people pick and choose. That's my, that's my theory at least. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing that. Um, and, and what about keeping, how did Schoolhouse keep the continuity of like the, you know, the progress or the grades or whatever you want to call it? Like, how did you because if yeah. a child is moving around like that, like who's keeping the transcript or who is keeping that, you know, proof that they have learned so that they can go on to like high school or, yeah. you know, I know we, we've spoken with Mastery Transcript Consortium, yep. which is so amazing. Um, but like for younger than middle school or high school, how can you keep that continuity? Yeah, so I think that's kind of the ideal and that's a few years down the road. But for the immediate term, Schoolhouse was the school of record for our students who were enrolled in it. So we did let the state know that they were enrolled with us and that, you know, um, that checked the box for kind of the compulsory school attendance law that all 50 states have. Um, and then really what happened was that they had time outside of Schoolhouse five hours a day. And so they would log on to things like Primer or things like Synthesis or, you know, explore MOOCs or go on field trips, right? And so I think there will still always have to probably be kind of a, a traditional school that for the purposes of the state is the school of record. But I think you're going to increasingly see that kind of narrow in terms of scope and in terms of duration. I mean, I, I do think that Workspace kind of does a good job of that where they actually do have kind of their core curriculum that takes place there, but then there's all of these kind of um, interests and extracurriculars that you can access as well. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Cool. Okay. Well, what, what do you want to ideally do next? Yeah, absolutely. Like what's your so, dream? Um, yeah, so uh, right, I, I um, stepped back from a full-time role from Schoolhouse in June. Um, and since then have just actually been working with um, a lot of those cool organizations that we just named, kind of helping them out as needed uh, with operations or growth or just kind of strategy. Um, so really just want to work with um, and school leaders that are out there and kind of help them bring about this feature. And then I think in the not, um, not uh, too far in the future, I I'd like to start my own um, uh, startup again that kind of helps parents who are looking for great local education options. So uh, more to come on that front in the future, but super happy now just kind of helping and advising and um, with a lot of these cool organizations. Nice. That's great. I think, I, so I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri, and I think okay. that Missouri just passed they did. Yep. a scholarship 
tell me what you call that again. Yeah, so I think they passed a tax credit scholarship. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So they'll be able to start granting students um, uh, public uh, money that then can be used at private schools. Um, so that's really exciting um, and something that, honestly, I, I think there were 20, 21 states last year that passed or expanded some new type of school choice. So I think going into the future, you're only going to kind of see that continue to grow. That's fantastic. So would that mean for like, we've been considering going and maybe opening a second action in St. Louis. Um, yeah. And so do you think that means that people would be able to pay for Acton Academy with that money? Yeah, absolutely. So, it, you know, like all things, and as a lawyer, it always depends on the details. But generally, um, you know, if you look into the program, um, it will have qualifications for the families and varies by state. But typically, as I was saying before, it's usually for low income families. So people who are at 100 or 200 or 300 percent of the federal poverty line are the ones who can qualify. So they need to apply and then are approved. And then the schools also will need to apply and be vetted by the state. And then once kind of both sides have done that, then the families will get their funding, the state, the state will allow the school to accept it, and then they'll be able to start accepting it. And this is actually really important for small private schools. It's what has actually saved a lot of kind of these traditional inner city Catholic schools that otherwise were gonna go out of business um, because they started actually being able to accept state funding. And so in places like Florida and Louisiana and Indiana, when I was at Notre Dame, I worked closely with the university on helping them kind of guide these Catholic schools in accepting the state funding. Um, so I think going forward, that's going to be kind of a great help for existing schools that are struggling, but hopefully also brings out new models um, like the Acton model. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think that's in the cards. But let me ask a question about that. So if the state has to approve, you know, if the state has to like approve your school in order yeah. for you to accept those funds, are we then starting a new problem where you're limiting choice because the state is now going to dictate how to run your school or what your curriculum is or what you can say and do? Yeah. So it's definitely a concern because anytime you take government money, it comes with government strings. And so there are some schools and families that for that reason, do not apply for it, do not accept it because they want to be as free as possible from government interference. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, working with a lot of these programs, there generally isn't nearly as much intrusion as maybe you might think. It's usually pretty straightforward. The state is just trying to make sure that the private school is going to offer kind of the minimum amount of required days, usually around 180, you know, that they might meet some health and safety things in terms of, okay, they have enough bathrooms, they're up to fire code, et cetera. Um, it, it varies. So in a place like Missouri, um, I wouldn't expect there to be too much regulation. Once again, you know, devil's in the details, so you'll have to read the law. Um, but um, generally, the program is meant to be flexible for the private schools. But yes, it's always a concern anytime there are new funding mechanisms. You really have to make sure you know kind of what you are um, dealing with in terms of requirements. Okay, that's great information. Thank you very much. Certainly helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for the, <laughs> the audience too. Great. Okay. 
Well, the final question that I always love to ask is if you could offer our audience a metaphor comparing kind of the conventional schooling that we grew up with, with, um, with maybe schoolhouse or, you know, with some, with school choice and these other things that you're, that you're advocating, what would that metaphor be? So I didn't pre-plan this, but it just popped into my head. Uh, I think it's maybe the difference between like an old small town movie theater and Netflix, right? You know, growing, if, if you grew up somewhere, it's a good one. One local theater and they usually played one movie for weeks at a time and people would go and see it over and over and it was entertaining, but maybe not super interesting to everyone. And now I think what we have is really kind of a plethora of choices, some of which we talked about on this program, but I think that now, right, there's lots of cool um, homeschooling orgs and co-ops and micro schools and learning pods and online schools and uh, different private school networks, classical and progressive and Acton. Um, So I think now there's probably never been as much choice available to families as there is both locally and online. Um, And so I think that's kind of the difference. Traditional model is kind of the the small town theater. And nowadays, um, what we're moving towards is more of a Netflix model. You know, you get to pick and choose what you want. Fantastic. That's a really great metaphor. I'm glad that popped into your head. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for stopping by today. I have learned so much. This is definitely something I wanted to get into and, and learn more about, especially because I think there's a lot of kind of controversy or conflict you know everything is always so polarized right now so i'm really glad that i was that we were able to talk and like i could learn more about this um very interesting topic from you appreciate it yeah thanks so much and uh, it was my pleasure to join you excellent so um so yeah we wish you all the best in whatever you end up doing and whatever you decide to do please we'd love you love to have you on again and hear all about it Absolutely. I'll plan okay. for it. Take care, Joe. Have a great afternoon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the New Schools Podcast. Tell a friend. Previous episodes and show notes, including any books or websites our guests recommend, can be found at thenewschools.com. If you're a parent who is looking for a new school for your family, send us a message. We would love to help. We can answer questions, share the resources we have, and help you get in touch with people in your area who are on the same path, determined to provide their kids with the best education. It's wildly important work. Thank you for doing it. And we'll see you next time.